Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10, we're plugging along here in our journey of this wonderful letter, and we find ourselves today at verse 26, and we'll uh, continue down through verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10, the title of the message is The Righteous Live by Faith. The righteous live by faith, and I encourage you to follow along there in the outline that is given to you in the worship guide as we study this passage of Scripture together. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful anticipation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour all adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment suppose ye shall he be thought Worthy to receive who hath trodden or trampled under the foot of the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith we are sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite or insult or blasphemy under the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And we know again that the Lord will judge all people. Therefore, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight, a great struggle of afflictions, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaching or both by reproaches and afflictions and partly while you became companions of them that were treated the same way. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, endurance, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just, the righteous, the true believers shall live by faith. But if any man draw back My soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Well, since chapter 1 in our study here of Hebrews, the writer has been leading us to a a grand finale, if you will, a central theme, a, a, a big emphasis that he wants us to know about pressing on and persevering, enduring, 
in the Christian life. We're, we're going to touch base with that theme as we come into chapter 11 next Sunday, but here we have in these brief closing verses of chapter 10 a reminder somewhat of, of where we're going. And what it is that the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us to see as we mature in the Christian life. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 19 through 25, and we saw what we must do in order to press on in the gospel. Namely, we must draw near to God, we must hold fast our confession, and we must devote ourselves to the church. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us, that if we want to press on in the gospel, then this has to be a faithful aspect of our lives, drawing near to God, holding fast our confession, and devoting ourselves to other believers. The writer now continues in leading us to this, this pinnacle moment that he wants to achieve with his hearers. It's the pinnacle of Christian living. What is it? That is simply living by faith. Living by faith. This is where we're going. This is, the, this is the big theme. Everything that he has written to this point has led us to help us see that Christian living is living every day of our lives, every step a life of faith. Now, I want us to dive into this passage, and the outline's not fancy. I've just given us three headers to help us make sense of all of this. You see that in your notes, and let me give them to you as we go through together. The first header is this. It's over verses 26 through 31, all right, 26 through 31. The first header is total rejection, all right, total rejection. That's what we see in verses 26 through 31. So what we have here is that the first half of our text is first a strong warning regarding the willful and deliberate sin after having developed a knowledge of the gospel. Look at it there in verse 26. For if we sin willfully or deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, on the surface, church, it would seem here that the writer is saying that if any one of us sin willfully, sin deliberately, that Jesus' sacrifice will no longer atone for our sins. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If on the surface that interpretation is correct, then verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10 is a frightening verse. Why is it frightening? Because all of us, whether we are believers or unbelievers, all of us, when we sin, we sin willfully. All sin, in a sense, is deliberate sin. So if that interpretation is true, then we're all in serious trouble. However, the immediate context, as well as the whole of Scripture, helps us to see that something deeper is going on here. That it can't mean if a believer sins after he 
has received Christ as Lord and Savior, that his sins are no longer atoned for. It can't mean that because it would nullify the rest of the Bible, which clearly tells us that those who are in the hand of Jesus will never fall out of the hand of Jesus. We are secure in Christ. He knows his children, and he will never cast them away. He will never reject them. So when we study the Bible, it is very important that we study the Bible in context. We can't take one verse of Scripture in isolation and develop some belief system or make a decision unless we understand that verse in its context. You wouldn't want, to, want anyone to take one statement that you make in isolation and, uh, and uh, try to prove a point against you. We, we shouldn't do that with the Bible. So when we come to a verse like this, we've got to look at the broader scope. What does this verse mean in light of the paragraph? And what does that paragraph mean in light of the chapter and the chapter in light of the book and the book in light of the testament and the testament in light of the whole of scripture and then that will give us clarity of exactly what he means here and it's not meant to suggest that if you sin willfully or deliberately as a believer then Jesus has no more blood to atone for your sin it's not what it means it may look like that on the surface but it's not what it means let me help you understand what the writer is saying here the first thing I wrote down in my notes is this this warning is directed to unbelievers, okay? This warning is directed to unbelievers. Look at what he says in verse 26. If we sin will willfully, after we have received, now here's the big phrase, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the gospel, who is he talking to in this moment, he is talking about those who have heard the gospel. They have heard the gospel so much that they now know the gospel. They have come into the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the gospel. They understand what the gospel is and they understand what the gospel means. But notice this morning that I did not say they believed the gospel. It doesn't say that. It says that these are those who came into the knowledge of it. They heard it. They know it. And they may even know it really, really, really well. But there is no indication here that they ever believed the gospel. And I think that's important because there are other sections of Scripture where the Bible goes on to say after they heard and knew it, they believed it. In fact, Steve preached from Ephesians 1 Wednesday night. And in Ephesians 1, the writer, Paul, says not only did the church at Ephesus hear the gospel and know the gospel, he says in the very same verse, and you believed the gospel. But no such indication is given here which is helping us to understand that he is saying, verse 26, to a group of unbelievers, but not just any group of unbelievers, church. I wrote this down in my notes. This warning is about unbelievers who have totally rejected the gospel, okay? They have totally rejected the gospel. Those who have received the knowledge of the truth, that is, they've heard it, they know it, they know what it is, they know what it means, but now they have willfully, will, deliberately sinned against the truth, against the gospel. In other words, they've heard it, they understand it, but they have deliberately chosen to reject it, to desert the gospel message in which they have been taught and even trained. And this is the willful sin that the writer speaks of. 
He's not just talking about any sin that we may commit. No, this is specific. It is the willful, deliberate sin of hearing the gospel, knowing the gospel, but defying it and dismissing it and rejecting it, deserting the gospel message. I also wrote this down. This is a warning about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's a warning about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Because look at the last phrase of verse 26. He says, if you sin willfully after you've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So to willfully and continually, continually, willfully, deliberately reject Jesus Christ, the writer is saying, there leaves for you no other possible means for atonement. That is, there is no way for a person to be forgiven of his sins and to be reconciled to God and to live with him eternally unless he comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is, you cannot reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and look inside of yourself or some other religion and think that that's going to be sufficient to atone for your sins. No, the writer is very clear that if you willfully reject Jesus after you've heard and know the gospel, then friend, there is no other way you can be saved. There is no other possible means of salvation. There is no other hope. Nothing else can atone for your sins except for Christ. Instead, those who reject Jesus Christ have only one option. And that is they must pay the eternal price for their own sins. And that's always striking to me about those who reject the gospel. Knowing what Jesus has freely done for us while conscientiously saying, I get it, I hear it, I understand it, but I'm not that moved by it. I mean, I see that he has freely done something that I can't do, nor do I have to do, but I think I'll just manage this whole spirituality on my own. In essence, what you're saying, friend, is, all right, I get that he's freely done it, but I'd rather pay for it myself. Notice what he says in verse 27. The only option you have when you reject Jesus Christ is the fearful expectation of judgment. The fearful expectation of judgment. In fact, in five of the opening six verses, we see a clear declaration of judgment on those who reject Jesus. That is, if you willfully reject Jesus Christ, then verse 27, there is an expectation of judgment. Verse 27 also says, there is a fiery indignation that will devour you. Verse 28 and 29 says, there is a much worse punishment than even those who rejected Moses' law. And then once again in verse 30, he says, the wrath and the judgment of the Lord will be upon your life. So as he's describing what happens to a person who willfully and deliberately rejects the gospel, it culminates into this grand statement. Look at the grand statement in verse 31. On top of all of this talk of wrath and judgment, he just wants you to know, if you don't get it already, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Why? Because those who reject the Son have everything to fear about the Father. Those who reject the Son have everything to fear about the Father. So this is who he's talking about. 
He's talking about people who hear the gospel, who know the gospel, but they continue to reject the gospel. There is no other means of atonement. There is no other way for them to be saved. The only thing they have to look forward to is the judgment of God, and it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Friend, this is not about the believer who lapses into sin. This is about the unbeliever who has heard the gospel, maybe even at one time made a profession of faith in the gospel. Maybe they've made many professions of faith in the gospel. But rather than having a faith that endured, they fizzled out. So much so that they now willfully and deliberately reject Jesus Christ and live continuously in a rebellious state toward God. Friend, these are those who at one point pretended to be believers. We need to get that about Hebrews 10, 26. This is not just any class of, of, of unbelievers. Not just ignorant unbelievers or untold unbelievers. You know who he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 10? Church people. Church people. People who were raised in church like my kids are, like I was. They're forced to come. They sit on the front row during the 9 a.m. service, and they, 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 they go back to the children's church, and we do it every Sunday, and they come back whether they want to or not on Wednesday night. They're raised in church. They hear the gospel, all the sermons that we hear. They know the Romans road. They, they, they know probably even how to tell somebody else to be saved. They get it. They understand it. They know what it is. They know what it means. But there reaches a point in their life where they say, hey, that's been all good for you, but I don't care really anything about it they've once pretended to be believers but now by virtue of their rejection of Jesus and their desertion of the gospel message they've they've proven themselves never to have truly been born again nor do they even right now want to be and there's a theological word for this we call it apostasy apostasy The intentional falling away or withdrawal from the true gospel after having known it, heard it, understood it, but still neglect to make it personal, to believe it. Calvin said the writer here describes as sinners not those who fall away into any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling away from the grace of God. I think this is why there is a connection between verse 25 and verse 26. And I'm not going to re-preach the message last week, but verse 25 is very clear. He says, if you want to press on in the gospel, you cannot live your Christian life forsaking the church. Because as soon as he says that in verse 25, he opens up in verse 26 and says, for, for, showing us that what he said in verse 25 has everything to do with the content of verse 26. For if you forsake the church, there's a good chance that you will forsake Christ altogether. It's a warning here. That we need to surround ourselves with the influence of the gospel. We need to believe it. We need to commit our lives to it. Because if our faith is real, we will endure in it. But if our faith is fraudulent, 
If we're just pretending, if we're just making professions but never possessing what Christ has done for us, then we will fall away. We will commit the ultimate apostasy. And by the way, forsaking church is not the only reason why someone would commit apostasy. There's many reasons the Bible tells us. Persecution, the pressures of life, suffering, temptation, false teachers. One, one thing is very clear here, friend. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Jude, and other passages in the Bible that the last days will be overwhelmingly marked by apostasy. Everybody wants to talk about the last days right now, and I get it. There are certainly a lot of birth pains, as Jesus said, taking place around the globe. But I think we're focusing on the wrong things. Let me just go ahead and remind you that that the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. If you think the vaccine is the mark of the beast, you have a bad hermeneutical study of the Bible. It's not even really a mark. Study it for yourself. It's an allegiance. It's a loyalty. But that's what we're so consumed with, aren't we? Well, the vaccine's the mark of the beast, or all this happening. I know we're living in bad times, and I don't like any of this any more than anybody else does. But what about the big picture? The big picture is what you need to be more concerned about, is that you know it's the last days when everybody forsakes the gospel. When the church attendance dwindles, when they close their doors, when they're not preaching the Bible, when they're giving heed to all these heresies and false teachings and believing everything that comes down to the pie. Listen, that's apostasy. That's falling away. That's the major mark of the last days. This is what the writer is saying. The last days will be a day in which people who grew up in church their whole life, they know it, they hear it, but they sin willfully against it because they don't want anything to do with it. We have to ask our questions at the time, well, can these people be identified? Like, can we, can we pick out who they are so we, so we know? Of course, the Bible's very clear about apostate teachers and what to look for. That's not the content of my message today. But in verse 29, the writer of Hebrews gives us a part description of these unique individuals. He says in verse 29 that the apostate, the one who has totally rejected Jesus and deserted his gospel, he is guilty of trampling the identity of Jesus. Trodden under his foot, the Son of God. That's a blatant disrespect and disregard for who Jesus is. This is not someone who's struggling with passions and lordship and loyalty, and they're trying to decide whether or not they want to give up their life for Christ. I mean, that, that, that person still hangs in the balance, right? But, but this person over here who's just saying, I hate him, he's worthless, he's not God, he didn't do any of this stuff, that's the mark of an apostasy. He tramples on the Son of God like he's an ant. Not only that, he says in verse 29, these are people who belittle the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They look at his covenant, his sacrifice, the blood that he shed, and they say, what's the difference with his blood? His blood is no different than anybody else. Oh, it's worthless. It can't forgive sin. Who are you to trust and believe in that? The death of Jesus. What kind of God would die? They're making their mark clear. And then he says, these are also those who insult the Holy Spirit that gave them opportunity to receive God's grace. 
What is the insulting of the Holy Spirit when God gives you opportunity to believe in him and to trust him? Opportunities like this where you're sitting under the sound of the gospel and the Lord is convicting your heart. It's time to trust God. It's time to commit your life to him. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only one who can reconcile you to God. He's the only one who can forgive you of all your sins. But instead of receiving that, you resist it and you reject it. You hear it, but you don't want to have anything to do with it. You're like my kids who pretend to not hear me when I'm talking to them. Wait a minute, come back. I know you heard me. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's working on us. We pretend he's, he's not even there. This is the mark of a, an apostate. And here's what I want you to see clearly. This type of individual, th- this is a unique, blatant, and public sin of rejection. To have had so much privilege in learning the gospel and still reject it. They've had so much privilege in learning the person, work, and spirit of Christ. They reject it, and now the Bible says they're going to experience a dreadful judgment. You know what that reminds me of? Listen carefully. It reminds me that right now, at this very moment, hell is full of people, full of people who have a clear understanding of the gospel, and yet they never bowed down their knee to Christ as king. And that's really the question this morning. Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you trusted him as Lord over your life and Lord over this universe? Have you agreed that he is the Savior, the only Redeemer for my sins? Have you made the gospel personal? Personal. That he didn't just do this for a bunch of other people. No, he did this for me, and I'm making it personal for me. Here's what I want to say, and we're going to go to the next point. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But the good news is you don't have to fall into the wrathful hands of the living God. You can fall into the loving arms. The loving arms of the living God. He gave himself for you. He invites you to trust him. Bow to his lordship. Fall into the arms of God and experience the love, grace, and forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. So what do we have here? We have total rejection, willful, deliberate refusal to believe and take the gospel personally. They know it. They hear it. They're hearing it again today. They'll hear it again next week. But it's leading them further into this unique, blatant sin of apostasy until they believe it. And what's the end for that person? Wrath and judgment that they don't have to bear, but they're choosing to bear. Because they're trampling the body of Jesus Christ. All right, here's the second header. Faithful endurance. Faithful endurance. And that's what brings us to verse 32, 32 through 38. So, so, so our passage shows us that there are those who totally and deliberately reject Christ when the pressure comes, specifically. And then there are those who faithfully endure with Christ regardless of the pressure that may fall upon him. And so he's giving them a word of encouragement here. He's saying, I know you're not going to be like that other group. That other group who falls away. And I know because you're in Christ and you truly believe. And because you're in Christ, we know that you will endure. We know that. And by the way, that's encouraging. Because even in our minds as true believers, when we are tempted to drift and sway, maybe prone to wonder, as the song says or says, or, or wonder if any of this even means anything, we, we come back to the scriptures and we're reminded that if I am in Christ, I have absolute confidence and assurance that He's going to see me through. 
He's going to help me endure. He's going to persevere my, uh, preserve my soul. And this is exactly what he says in verse 39. Look at it there. We're going to come back to it at the end of the message, but look at it right now. Verse 39. He says, we are not of them who draw back to perdition. But we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. It's a word of encouragement. Yeah, there are those who willfully, deliberately reject God. They commit apostasy. Judgment is the only thing ahead of them in the future. But we're not of that group. Because we're not falling away. We're sticking to the gospel. We're believing the gospel. We're we're enduring and persevering in the gospel. I want to help you with this because this is the pinnacle of where we're going in the book of Hebrews. At the heart of all of this. Especially endurance and perseverance, pressing on, continuing. At the heart of all of this is faith. Faith. The righteous, as he says in verse 38, live and endure by faith while the lost turn back and fall away. That's the dividing line. Righteous people live by faith. They endure by faith. They're not going to reject. They're not going to fall away. They're going to endure. They may have tough times. They may lapse into individual sin, but in the end, they're going to persevere, and they're going to finish the course. They're going to complete the work that God began in them. And how does that happen? How do we endure? How do we preserve or or, or persevere? We do it as we live by faith. Living by faith. And he mentions specifically three quick things. Let me just give them to you. There's faith in drawing near to God. Remember, we're talking about how do we persevere? How do we endure? How do we exemplify faithful endurance? Well, the first step is we got to have enough faith. we got to live our lives by faith in that we draw near to God. Faith in drawing near to God. Look at verse 35. He says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. And the question is, what, what confidence is he speaking of? Well, he's already talked about this confidence back in verse 19 through 22. It's the confidence that we have to approach the throne of God, right? He says, seeing, therefore, that we have confidence, we have boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. This is the confidence in which he is reminding us this morning. Do not cast that confidence away, but draw near to God and keep drawing near to God. When you think the world's getting further away, you get closer. When you think everybody's drifting, you get nearer and nearer to God. That is how we endure. By faith, every day of our lives, we draw near to God. Now, this is specifically in relation to the struggles and sufferings that we face in life. And we see that because of the word, therefore, in verse 35. Do you see it? Cast not away, therefore, therefore, do not cast, all right? We understand this. We say it a lot around here. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. And so we look at therefore, we understand this is automatically connected to the passage ahead of us. And what did he say in the passage ahead of us, verses 32 through 34? He said, here's what you need to do to draw near to God when you're tempted to quit. And he says, the first thing that you need to do, verse 32, call To remembrance. In other words, if the thought of quitting ever comes to your mind, recall the former days. Think about the struggles and sufferings that you have experienced since becoming a follower of Christ and how God gave you the grace to endure them. And don't forget that, believing that as he brought you through that struggle, he will also bring you through this struggle. As you endured that suffering, the same God will help you endure today's suffering. And we're not talking about minimal struggles here. 
We're talking about serious afflictions of life. In fact, the word uh, struggle, or some of your translations may say fight there in your Bibles. After you've endured a great fight of affliction, struggle, it's, it's the word athlesis. Athlesis is where we get our English word athlete. So he wants us to see that the sufferings and struggles of this life are like a hard-fought athletic event. That there's going to come a time in that competition, in that fight, in that struggle, where you're going to wonder, do I have anything left to give? Now, I can't help but to bring the analogy to my own uh, hobby of, of, of running. And there's one thing that all we runners understand, especially long-distance races. Uh, if you're running a marathon, there's going to be a place where you're going to hit the wall, all right? Now, some people hit the wall harder than others, but everybody in a long-distance race like that gets to the point where, and, and for me, in a marathon, I, I've, done, I've done two full marathons. In both, both occasions, it was around the 22 and 23rd mile marker when I got hit. And here's what it is. You're doing good. You're, 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 you're eating your fuel. You're drinking your fuel. I mean, you're doing good. Can't believe this, man. I've done 20. You start thinking too big of yourself. I've done, I've done 20 miles. And all of a sudden, your body says, you stupid idiot. Why are you bringing me through this? <laughs> what in the world are you doing to me? You're a moron. Why would you do this to me? And I'm sitting here in my mind thinking, because this is what I was supposed to do. No, no, you need to quit right now. Look at all those people getting on the bus and drinking their chocolate milk and eating their cake and ice cream. You could be doing that. Why are you putting me through this? You know what I have to do in those moments? I have to think back to the first time. All right, I've done this before. I felt this before. I've tried to talk myself out of it before. But if I did this and I think that and I look toward ahead, I can finish. I can complete. I can endure. And the same analogy is true spiritually. You know what happened to me in 2021? I think I hit a wall spiritually. I hit a wall. And I'm wondering right around whatever mile I'm on, and I sure hope that I'm not near 26, Lord. But, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to the end here, and all of a sudden I'm wondering, I don't think I can do this anymore. And I have to recall and remember by faith, get close to God again and know, hey, he brought me through that struggle and he helped me endure that suffering and he helped pave the way through that difficulty. I can believe he will do it again if I just trust him. These, these people were going, going through it, man. Verse 33, they were made a gazing stock, a, spect a spectacle. It's the word theatrizo. It's where we get our English word theater. In other words, the ungodly people we're treating the beatdown of Christians as entertainment. They got their fix by making a spectacle out of believers. And in this, the writer says, recall, recall, remember how by drawing near to God, he provided you before everything you needed to endure, and he's going to provide it again. In this case, what did he specifically provide? In verse 33, he provided other believers for them. They joined themselves together with other believers. They found companions who were going through the same sufferings, and what did they do? They marched through together, side by side, choosing to face the struggles and suffering, not alone, but together. I mean, how many times are we going to see this in the book of Hebrews? The emphasis of the church and how we need it to endure the struggles and sufferings of the Christian life. You will hit the wall and quit if you do this by yourself. 
God never intended it to be done in isolation. So he says, remember, draw near to God and remember how that I gave you a church and I gave you other believers and I gave you spiritual people in your life and how you locked arms together and you went through it together and that's what kept you going and that's how you finished. I can say the same thing about running. Many times Josh Heyman and I will be out on a run and, man, I'm, I'm about to quit. And he, kind of, he looks, hey, pastor, you can do it. Just keep going. I'm thinking... Josh, I hate you. I don't want to keep going. And like, no, no, you can keep doing this. And just by his mere presence, just by his mere presence. I remember going to the gym one day. Kathleen was uh, on the treadmill behind me running. I was on the treadmill in front of her. And I was only due to run like five miles that day. But my wife is there. You know, she's looking at me from behind, right? And I got I to gotta just, I got to make sure, look at this body as she's seeing me uh, progress. And I want to distract her on the treadmill behind me. But I get the five miles. I kind of look behind me and she's still going and I'm struggling. I look at six miles and she's still going and I'm struggling. I'm thinking to myself, the only reason I'm standing on the treadmill, because I don't want to quit before her. Just by her mere presence, I think I did 10 miles that day that I wasn't supposed to do. Now, I was running and she was walking, but the point of the matter is, together, together, we keep going. And we need to remember that. Remember how God has brought people in your life. Don't go through this by yourself. Don't live in isolation. Remember the people that he has brought in your life. Not only that, verse 34 says that they endured, they drew near to God. They remembered how God let them serve others who were suffering. It's interesting. He he, he commends them for how they had compassion on him when he was in prison. Now, this is important because in the first century, prisoners had no means of survival apart from friends who who would visit them. That is, unlike our... Prisons today, in, in these days, if you didn't have clothes, food, or water, nobody provided that for you but your friends. So if you're going to eat, your friends had to come to the jail and bring it. If you're going to drink, your friends had to go. If you're going to wear clothes, your friends had to bring that to you. And so what was happening here was not only were they serving those who were suffering, but they were putting their own lives in jeopardy for, for even doing so. Because if that Christian was being locked up for his faith, and I publicly go there and serve him and minister him in the name of Jesus Christ, what's going to keep them from putting me in the same jail cell that he or she is in? This is what happens when we struggle and suffer, right? We we fail to serve people. I think one of the best things you can do when you're hurting is go help somebody. Just go help somebody and let God use that in your life. It's how we endure. And then, of course, at the end of verse 34... I think this is our biggest problem. These people endured. They drew near to God because they let go of this world. And with joy, they focused on heaven. You see, you see that in verse, verse 34, chapter 10? He says, you joyfully allowed them to spoil your goods. Oh, I don't know about that, Pastor. Somebody breaks into my house and starts stealing my stuff. That's why I got a concealed carry permit for them people. I don't see anything about a concealed carry permit in here. What I do see is Christians who weren't attached to their possessions. What I do see here is believers who were so heavenly minded, so focused on who they were and what they possessed in Christ, that they didn't raise a fuss about what was being taken away from them on earth. Now, you can just put that in your Sunday afternoon thinking cap and reflect on it and send me a bad email tomorrow if you want. Don't do it today. I'm watching football this afternoon. (laughs) But some of us are too bent out of shape about what's going on here because we're not even thinking about what God has given us there. 
And that's what they were called to remember. And this is the confidence they have. That God has delivered them. God will deliver them. Let me give you these last two. My time is up. Faith in doing the will of God. Verse 36 says, after you've done the will of God. What's the will of God? In this context, the will of God is enduring. Persevering. We're talking about how do we faithfully endure. We do it by doing the will of God. And then thirdly, faith in waiting for the promises of God. Faith in waiting for the promises of God. Verse 37 says, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. And guess what? He's not going to tarry. That's good news, right? Because when you're, look, when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're wondering if you can keep going, if I can endure all this mess that's going on around me, I just have to remind myself that he who said he's going to come back and fix all this is coming. And when he comes, he's not going to come slowly. <laughs> he's going to take care of it. It's an actually a quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 37 is, and verse 38. He's quoting, now I know some of us say it different. I prefer Habakkuk. Some of us say Habakkuk. I've heard some say tobacco, all right? So whatever you want to, that's the South rendition, all right? Tobacco, however you want to. Habakkuk is my, my, I think, preferred understanding of the word in Hebrew. It's a quotation from Habakkuk. When he was struggling with the advances of the ungodly while the righteous were suffering. That was what the whole book is about. Righteous people were hurting. They were suffering. They were struggling. They were being put to death. And then he looks around him and he says, look at all these unrighteous people living it up. They have no problems, apparently. They get everything, and here we are hurting. And frankly, frankly, Habakkuk is ticked off about it. And he's upset. And, and God comes to him and says, look, if it seems slow to you, that is, if God's justice and God's final redemption seems slow to you, Habakkuk, just wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not Delay. And while you're waiting for it, Habakkuk, live by faith. Live by faith. Trust me that I'm in control, that I'm working all of this out. Rest in me. Of course, Habakkuk had to learn that lesson. And thankfully he did. He, he rised above his depression. He rose above the struggle. And he wrote a great concluding song of faith to the book. Let me read it to you. This is the closing of the book. Habakkuk 3.17 says, this is him writing after complaining at God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, nor produce come to the field, and the field yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no more herd or cattle in the stalls. What's he saying? Even if God doesn't fix any of it. Here's the next phrase. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For it is God who is my strength. Isn't that what we all want? I don't think I'm there. I want to be there. And I know that that perspective of God and his promises will give me the endurance that I need to press on. That's the encouragement. God's true children will endure. They will endure the struggles. They're going to endure the sufferings, the pressures of this life. And we do it as we live by faith. And remember, that's a fact. The righteous do live by faith. They do. And they do live by faith as they draw near to God, do his will, and wait for his promise. All right, I don't want you to fear because I'm going to give you this third header and I'm going to make one comment and we're going to pray. 
And it's not fancy. I told you that already. We have, we have total rejection. We have faithful endurance. And here's what verse 39 says, essentially. All right, look right here. Here's the third header. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? Are you among those who are walking down a very dangerous path of total rejection of God? Or are you among those who say, I don't know how, but with God's grace and help, I am partnering with other believers. I'm going to draw near to God, do His will, wait for His promise, and endure until my salvation is complete. Which group are you in? Because there's two groups here. 39, this is it, last verse. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition. That's the group over here. Not, not you, I'm sorry. This is figuratively the group. Should I switch it up? Should I switch it up? Okay. We're, we're, not, we're not of this group over here who draw back. But he says we are of this group here who believe to the endurance of the soul, to the completion of a work God began in our lives. Which group are you in? Those who've heard it, understand it, know it, but reject it. Or those who hear it, know it, understand it, and have believed it with all your heart. And can leave here this morning with confidence that you will faithfully endure because of it. The righteous live by faith. So come to Jesus. Trust him, but believe him. Enter the holiest by the blood of Christ. The door is wide open and you will endure if you come by the way of Christ's cross. Trust in Jesus. Because if you don't trust in Jesus and his righteousness for the saving of your soul, there's only one option. And that is to pay for it yourself for all of eternity in the wrath and judgment of God. But here you are sitting on a Sunday morning. Afternoon, Pastor. God's given you another opportunity. But there's no guarantee that there'll be another one after this. Come to Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer this morning.